So let us, loved ones, read responsibly Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31 and 32. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in deliverance he has won for us. Question 32, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. And the scripture passage from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is God's word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening. And tonight's lesson, loved ones, as we make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism and also the Articles of Faith and the Apostles' Creed, we're looking at uh, who the Son of God is, who Jesus is, and we're considering his name or his title rather, Christ, why he is called Christ. It is not the last name of Jesus, as some might assume, but rather a title that he bears, a title that he has been given. It comes from the Greek word Christos, Christos, which means anointed with oil. Now, the equivalent Hebrew term in the Old Testament is Mashiach, Mashiach, which also means the same thing, anointed with oil. It's really fascinating to consider that originally the oil of anointing was reserved only for the priesthood in Israel and their their set up as a society, but was later extended to the appointment of kings as well in Israel. And we can find the instructions for both making that special, unique uh, oil of anointing and applying it In Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 to 33, if you'd like to go look at that later. Uh, But that's where Moses gives the instructions for exactly making this oil and then how to use it, on whom to put it it on, right? And so in that text, uh, Moses says that they were to anoint first the tabernacle. So the tent of meeting where God met with his people and through, uh, through the priests, Uh, They're serving. God was meeting his people. And so they were to anoint the tabernacle 
and all the accessories, all the tools, all the different aspects of the tabernacle itself. Why? In order to, it says, consecrate them so that they would be most holy. And whatever touches them would be holy. So in order to set them apart from common use and have them be sacred in use to God, in service to him. Additionally, in verse 30 to 33 of Exodus there, we read this, anoint Aaron, that was Moses' brother, and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. So he gave them the formula to make this oil, but only for this specific use, not for anyone else. Uh, It is sacred. You are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like this and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. Fascinating, right? What's even more interesting is later in the story, God himself extends the appropriate use of this anointing oil, not just to the priests, but he extends it to the kings when he commands Samuel the prophet to anoint Saul first as king and then later David, the shepherd boy, to be king over Israel. And this became, it seems, the ordinary practice for coronation ceremonies of kings in the life and society of Israel. And so when a king was ready to take the throne, they would be anointed with oil. In that way, we find that anointing oil points to both sacred appointment as priests and kings. And often the prophets were either pre- or were priests themselves or ones who were administering the oils. So we can think of Samuel, who was himself a priest, or Isaiah, who as a prophet was also likely a priest serving in the temple when he had that great vision of the Lord, the King of glory. And so we see that this anointing oil in the Old Testament was very much tied to prophets, priests, and kings, those three offices together. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 41, we read that when Andrew, one of the disciples of Jesus, when he found Jesus and heard about him and began to follow him, he ran and the first thing he did, he went and told his brother Simon this, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. So John, in that passage there, he gives his Greek readers, so he's assuming that probably they're not Jewish, uh, maybe a primary, primarily a Greek audience that he's writing to. He gives them this parenthetical statement there to clarify what he means by Messiah, because by just saying Messiah, maybe they wouldn't understand. And so he clarifies it by saying, well, Messiah means Christ. So um, he wants them to realize the Jewish roots behind this title uh, It has deep history back in the Old Testament. As we've been seeing in Isaiah, the Jewish believers were looking forward to the Messiah, to the messianic figure who would arrive. And with all the prophecies, all of the typology that they had at their disposal, the Jewish believers had what we could say kind of a lot of loose pieces of the puzzle that they were trying to piece together in order to figure out who this Messiah would be and what he would do. And so even though they didn't have a clear concept in their mind, an entirely clear concept of who the Messiah would be, 
at the time of Jesus' birth and ministry, the Jewish people were definitely hoping for the advent and the victory of this Messiah figure, anointed one, right? In other words, all of their hope in God, all of their hope in God was pointed to the Messiah who was to come, the Christ, who, according to David in Psalm 110, we saw a few weeks back, would be both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that, in a sense, uh, priesthood and kingship come together in this messianic figure. Now, we can kind of take a step back, and I want to ask this question. What would humanity have been like apart from prophets, priests, and kings? So we can think of that and work our way through each one. What if there were no prophets? Well, if there were no prophets, we would have been forever untethered from the source of all truth. So we would still have access to the book of creation, uh, which is ever open before us to study by way of science, right? And to learn truths about God's world. And there's much to understand. We can analyze and interpret physical reality before us by our experience through the senses. And it has, but it has no ability to show us what is beyond the physical realm, what is beyond the, the mere empirical realm. It cannot show us beyond that into the supernatural realm where God exists. Therefore, we would be left just in our darkened minds here in this world, not able to see anything beyond, not able to look into what God has done and what God is doing. Therefore, we would have no true enlightenment apart from a proper knowledge of God. We'd have some truth, but not the full truth. And so this is what the prophets of old gave to Israel in measure. They gave them glimpses and the truth about who God is in this world in light of its creator. But Christ has given us that knowledge in full, which is what the author of Hebrews says in verses one through three of our text, saying in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So as we considered last week, if you're here with us, there is no greater, no clearer, no more fuller revelation of who God is than Jesus Christ. A fascinating text is in John 1.18, where he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the only God who is at the Father's side has made him, that is God, known. And what's fascinating there is that the verb in Greek for to make known, or to make known there is exegete. If you're familiar with um, Reformed theology or familiar with uh, the study of scripture, to exegete a text of Scripture is to draw out its meaning and then explain it clearly to your hearers. And that's the task of a preacher is to have a text before you, study it, draw out the meaning of that text and then present it clearly to the people. So what John is saying is that that's what Jesus has done for us with the father. Jesus is the exegesis of God, the father. He has drawn out the meaning, the heart of the father and presented that to us in the greatest way possible, the greatest prophet ever. So he is our great prophet. Now, what if there were no priests, no priest? 
but we would be forever alienated from God by our sins and forever filled also with enmity for one another. We'd be in, in, in a state of hatred towards one another. No peace, no reconciliation. Really, estrangement from the blessings of God and one another and all of creation is the curse of sin. After Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning, there was an estrangement, this separation that occurred between God and humanity and then humanity amongst itself and humanity in all of creation, right? And that final ultimate estrangement from all of God's blessedness is death itself in hell. Now, priests, they served as go-betweens in, in between God and us in order to secure reconciliation and maintain peace with God. They served as sort of mediators or peacemakers in Israel's society. And again, we look at Hebrews 1, verse 3, and it says that Jesus did this in full for us. How? By making purification for sins. He then, it says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, in the ornate architecture and decorations that filled the temple, there was one piece of furniture that is strangely missing, something that is not there. There was no chair. There was no chair to sit upon. Why? Because the priests in the Old Testament, they never finished their work of making sacrifices of animals because the people kept on sinning and the blood of animals cannot atone and make full, uh, rec- uh, full remission of sins for the sins of people, of humanity. And therefore, they never were able to sit down because their task was never finished. But by contrast, Christ, our great high priest, was able to sit down because later, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 26, he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin, by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice to do away with all our sin once and for all. Our great high priest who has, who has reconciled us. Uh, after that estrangement, he's brought us back in unity with God and fellowship with him and also with one another and ultimately with all of creation. Now in the last case, no kings. What if there were no kings? Well, if there were no kings, we would suffer under chaotic oppression Forever, The blessing of kingship was uh, most displayed in the life and ministry of David, King David. He led God's people in victory over against the godless inhabitants of the promised land. And he established the kingdom of Israel in righteousness and truth. He was, in a sense, as king, dispelling the chaos and establishing order in the realm of the promised land. And according to Deuteronomy 17... Verse 18 to 20, when a king ascended to the throne after that coronation ceremony, his job, part of it, was to make a copy of the law of God, probably Deuteronomy itself as a book, in order to ensure that God's whole law would be observed by the people of Israel with justice and equity for all. And it even says there uh, that the king should remember that he is no greater than the rest of the Israelites. So impartiality, justice. And again, here we find the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ was appointed heir of all things and through whom God made the whole universe. And so 
He's showing us that the Son of God was there in the beginning when God brought order out of chaos. And according to Hebrews 1, we also find that God is still sustaining all things by his powerful word. And the Father is upholding the universe with the aim of establishing Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that is, the king over all things. And so we've seen uh, in this way the necessity of the prophets, the priests, and the kings. But even more, we see the necessity of the one in whom those three offices coalesce together for that consummate purpose of fulfilling God's mission in the world in the person of Christ. They came together, those three offices, and Christ holds them together perfectly. Now, what is remarkable as well is that now, as we see in the in question and answer 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, is that God also calls us Christians. So Christian means Christian, a little Christ or a little Messiah. Now, why is that? It's because we share in his anointing by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you have the Holy Spirit. And we are therefore, by union with Christ and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we are all prophets, priests, and kings. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 alludes to this truth when he says of Christians, all of us, speaking of the church, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So based on that verse, we learn that by faith in Jesus, we are made royal, royal like kings, right? We are made holy as priests, and we are tasked to declare with our mouths the praises of God like prophets, prophets, priests, and kings. And this is also why in 1 John we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And I was looking at the entirety of 1 John and considering John's whole message. And throughout his letter in 1 John, he makes the argument, it seems, that all those who uphold the truth about Jesus, like prophets, all those who purify themselves from sin, like priests, and all those who do right, like kings, those are the ones who show themselves to have the anointing of the Spirit of Christ. And so one of John's main points in that letter, if you've read it, in 1 John is to help us identify who really is a true Christian based on looking at the fruit of their lives. And he says at the end of his letter in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So in other words, he's saying, I write to you so that you may see and recognize the evidence of the Spirit's anointing in your life or perhaps the, the absence of that evidence, which might call you, into, or call you to question and reconsider your commitment, etc. And so we can examine ourselves and ask whether or not we are seeking to uphold the truth 
about God and the gospel as prophets? Is that you? Are you seeking to uphold the truth of God and his Messiah like a prophet? Are you seeking to purify yourself from sin? Not just some sin, but all sin. Is that your desire to do so? And also throughout his letter, are you desirous of seeking peace and unity and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is another fruit of your salvation, fruit that the Spirit is upon you, like priests who purified Israel by the sacrifices and also uh, sought peace, right, amongst brothers. Lastly, are we seeking to do what is right, what is just? Is there evidence? Is there evidence that we are desirous of God's kingdom and his righteousness? And according to First John, if there is, then there is evidence that you have Christ anointing upon you by his Holy Spirit. And of course, it's not in perfection. It's, it's whether or not we have those desires, if they're growing, if we have fruit in our lives, that those things are true of us in some measure. So since we share in Christ's anointing loved ones by the Spirit, let us continue, as the Catechism says, to confess his name, present ourselves to him as living sacrifices of thanks, and strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, with confidence that, and this is a glorious truth, that we shall reign with Christ over all creation for all of eternity when he comes again to make all things new. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time of study to consider the title of our King, our priest, and our prophet, Jesus the Christ, the Mashiach. Lord, we ask uh, that you would give us a greater measure of faith in him, to trust in him and all he has done, revealing who you are to us, uh, reconciling us to you through his one sacrifice on the cross to atone for all our sins, and also ruling and reigning over us, establishing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we ask as well that by your spirit, upon us, that you would anoint us and continue to give us greater measures of the Spirit, that we might profess Christ's name, uphold that truth, that we might purify ourselves from sin, and that we might do what is right to the honor and glory of our God and our Messiah. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.